This month, we're celebrating 10 years of Monocle 24. And to mark the anniversary, we're counting down some of our favorite moments on air, from live broadcasts out on the road to coverage of the biggest news stories of the decade, to some of the many famous names that have graced our studios around the world. What better way to kick off our selection than by revisiting the very first edition of The Globalist, which aired on the 17th of October, 2011. The program was hosted by Tyler Brule, Andrew Tuck, and Steve Bloomfield from Monocle HQ here at Midori House in London. It's 1600 in Sydney, 1400 in Tokyo, and 6am here in London. You're with Monocle 24, live from London. The Globalist starts now. Good morning from Midori House here in London and welcome to this first edition of The Globalist here on Monocle 24 with me, Tyler Brulé, Andrew Tuck and Steve Bloomfield. Ahead on the programme, we'll be talking to Sweden's Foreign Minister, Carl Bildt, about why Turkey deserves EU membership. As a matter of fact, in Turkey, we need Europe. In Europe, we even more need Turkey. We need the demographic dynamics, we need the economic strength, we need the geopolitical credibility. And we'll be checking in with our woman in Bogota for the word on the street. 300 women decided that they were going to abstain from sex in order to raise awareness about the state of the roads. And they thought that that was the best way to get people to listen to them. And we'll be taking it back to Sweden with a bit of music from the Quiet Night Orchestra. All that, plus our world weather forecast and our review of the papers from Seoul to Abu Dhabi, right here on The Globalist on Monocle 24. But before that, it's a very good morning to Steve and to Andrew. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, and a very good early morning as well. Absolutely. I guess you had a bit of sleep. I, I got a little bit, yeah, a little bit. Andrew, don't, don't tell us off for having two hours in bed. <laughs> that was. That, I think we're allowed that. I know that you've been up the whole night, but uh, good to see you looking so good. Thank you. Oh, my goodness, all the flattery. <laughs> it's a shame, it's a shame <laughs> that we're on radio. But it's very dark in here. Uh, well, it's, um, it's been quite a, a journey to get here, Andrew. It was about, what, 18 months ago, I would say, that we did the first pilot for this, uh, that we had the idea that uh, we should do something 24 hours a day, no? Uh, yes, and you had a very good idea, although at the time we were only doing one hour of audio a week, so it's been a bit of a leap to go to 24 hours, but I think we kind of recognised back then there was a real market for something a little bit kind of cosier and warmer in the audio world. And anyway, yeah, I want to thank all of the people, uh, well, up until about, so I turned my, uh, my Blackberry off uh, just a few minutes ago, but uh, a lot of well-wishers this morning as well, which is very nice. How many, how many notes did you get, Steve? I got a few, mainly from our correspondent saying, yeah, good luck. Um, and, it's, and actually, that's been one of the great things about it is we've now, you know, over the past five years, we've built up a fantastic network of correspondents and contributors uh, across the world. And you know, many of them have got huge experience in radio mm-hmm. and have been incredibly excited about getting involved. Well, and also a yeah, part of the, the making um, of all of this has been uh, really some fantastic coaches uh, who've been here at Midori House as well, training people we brought in from other markets, as much as you chaps, and you know, a couple of courses for me as well. Yes, a certain Welsh lady's kind of given us lots of uh, coaching along the way. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder, I wonder yes. if we should give her name away. Shall we? No, maybe not. Okay. <laughs> we'll wait. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll see how we get on uh, on later later this evening. Okay, every morning we'll be having a world weather report. So, for the first time, here's Thomas Schaffnacker with his look across the week. Thank you very much, uh, Steve. Um, yes, I think on Monday what we're going to be doing most of the time is looking at world weather highlights. So the kind of areas where we're seeing big changes going on in the air. So we'll start with Europe, first of all. And there's certainly a big change on the way. So far, the autumn's been absolutely beautiful across many parts of Europe. But there's wind and rain on the way, and it's going to get quite a bit colder too. In fact, all the way from the UK to the south of France, Germany and Switzerland. It's going to be our first taste of Arctic air after all. It's uh, October. Now, in Switzerland, the Alps are going to get much colder over the next few days. In fact, a fresh dose of snow all around midweek. Great news for the early skiing season. An example here is St Moritz. Early in the week, it'll be around six degrees Celsius. By Wednesday, we're talking about sub-zero temperatures during the day and a covering of snow. So winter, not far away. And then towards the end of the week and into the weekend, it looks like the weather's going to get a lot more turbulent across Western Europe. Powerful jet stream could send stormy weather 
to Western Europe, possibly impacting air travel. But that's still a long way off, be sure. We'll keep you updated um, here on Monocle 24. But that's Europe in a nutshell. Now, over the pond in the United States, you might be familiar with the term nor'easter. And that means pretty ugly weather. Now, it's not a snowy nor'easter, because nor'easters are often associated with snow. But a major talking point, as far as the weather goes this week across the United States, will be the huge drop in temperatures, all the way from the Canadian border, across the Midwest, down to Texas, and into North Florida. In Atlanta, we're talking about a drop from near 30 degrees early in the week, down to 14 Celsius. And that's one. And then two is lots of rain across the United States, eastern half of the United States, all the way again from Florida to Tennessee to New York, even some wet snow around the Great Lakes. So autumn is well and truly making its presence felt across the United States this week. Meanwhile, in San Francisco, it'll be beautiful, around 20 degrees for most of the week. And finally, the Asia-Pacific region. Nothing unusual happening here on the weather front. A lot of warm weather from China to Japan, that's some beautiful weather in Tokyo most of the week. Highs around uh, low to mid-twenties. So those were the world weather highlights. I'm your meteorologist, Thomas Schaffernecker, here on Monocle 24. Thomas, some very fine forecasting there, and uh, welcome to the Monocle team. Thank you so much. Very Delighted good. to be here. I think, I think we need a camera in here because you, you acted out so well. Oh, really? Yeah, Thank you. absolutely. Very, 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 it's just the TV background, you see. Must be something like that. It's uh, just coming up to about uh, 10 minutes past the hour. You're listening to The Globalist here on Monocle 24. A bit later in the program, we'll be reviewing the world's papers, but before that, we'll be getting the day's main business stories from China right after this. <laughs> Next up, we have some live music. In the summer of 2019, our team decamped to Paris to produce the Summer Series, a mini-series of programs about culture, food and drink, and media, all hosted from the French capital. As well as that, we had live music from various pop acts, including the Swiss singer Vendredi Sur Mer. Here she is singing La Femme à la Peau Bleue.
Tall Stories is the sister program of The Urbanist. Each week, one of Monaco's team tells us about a city that's important to them. Some are more tangible than others, and in this one, Andrew Tuck contemplates the urban apparitions that bring a sense of belonging to the cities in which we live. Do you see ghosts? I don't mean spectral beings emerging from your bedroom wall or strange figures in the mist. I mean ghosts of your times past, echoes of lives that you lived. Let me explain. I've lived in London a long time. I came here to go to university and have stayed and stayed. And across decades, my life has played out in streets, restaurants, bars and offices that form but a fraction of this vast metropolis. Most days you dart around the city, simply focused on getting to where you need to be. But every now and then, you see a ghost. Often, the ghost is you. Last weekend, I was in London's Covent Garden and walked past the office where I got my first go at trying to be a journalist. And I momentarily caught a flash of myself walking up the stairs, armed with a lot of hope but perhaps not much else. It was here that I met Tony Elliott, the founder of Time Out, who, for a reason I've never quite fathomed, decided to give this intern a chance. At the end of the same road, I walked past what was the greengrocer's, but now offers desirable bottles of wine. And just round the corner, I saw where my friend had a PR company. I can't quite walk past that door without thinking about the injustice of those early years of AIDS. Ghosts to the right and to the left of me. But these are not visions to be scared of. They are memories etched into place. Even when those places have been changed by time and commerce. They are places that remind me of trips to London as a kid with my parents. Of when I first came here to study. Of long nights out in clubs. Of triumphs and failures, dates and breakups. There are places that can trigger a smile and others that are perhaps best forgot. But apart from all the urban lures of work and play that normally bind us to a city, in the end, it's often ghosts that make us feel like a city really belongs to us and perhaps us to it. Next on our list, we have an interview with legendary writer David Sedaris. He spoke to Georgina Godwin for Meet the Writers back in 2018 to coincide with the release of his book, Calypso. Here he discusses his famous family and his sense of humor. I think it's 10 million books. 10 million? I think that's what I hear. That's what I hear. Is that now a bit strange? Do you look back at your early life and think, how did that happen? No, I do. I mean, I don't know where that figure came from, but I started hearing it a few years ago. So it sounds good to me. So I always correct people when they get lower than that. But uh, no, it never occurred to me. Just the same way it never occurs to me. I meet students who had to write a paper about me. And I think that really never occurred to me because that's awful. And I feel pretty bad about that because you can't enjoy reading something if you have to turn around and write a paper about it. One guy, though, he had his students listen to one of my audiobooks or a part of my audiobook. And they were talking about it afterwards, and one kid said, I just feel sorry for the old lady. And he said, what old lady? He said, the old lady they, that had to read the book out loud. <laughs> <laughs> well, you make this point in your, in your most recent book that actually people often mistake your voice for a woman. When I'm in a hotel and I call down, they always say, well, have that right up, ma'am. Always. And I didn't think I sounded like a woman. I sound like a Muppet, right? <laughs> But then somebody came up to me a while ago and said, no, you don't sound like a woman or like a Muppet. You sound like Piglet. (laughs) And I think they were talking about Piglet from the Winnie the Pooh, you know, the earlier Winnie the Pooh Mm. programs, which I love Piglet's voice, so I'm fine with that. But now apparently I'm a she-Piglet. I sound like a she-Piglet. I wonder what your family think of that and if any of them sound similar. I know that uh, they've obviously always been a rich source of material for you. Um, My brother's car broke down and he called for a tow truck and the guy said, we'll be right out, sweetie. (laughs) My brother. (laughs) 
was not just a woman, but a sweetie. And my dad's voice is really soft. My father has a really beautiful voice, I think. It's soft. It's a little bit deeper. And he doesn't have a linear little trace of a lisp. It's just very nice. I think it's his best quality. Your appreciation of the qualities of your five siblings seems to shift. There are a lot of changes in family relationships that you describe in in your book. Sometimes you're two, sometimes you're a quartet against the others. I think when you come from a large family especially, that changes a lot. I'm close with everyone in my family, but I take turns being somebody's best friend. And then it's not like we have a fight. It just kind of morphs move over with somebody else for a while and then move back again. But it's always in in flux. You've talked in this book about the suicide of your sister, Tiffany, and I wonder how people should move on from tragedy. Should we we answer questions truthfully? For instance, no, no, there are five of us, not six of us any longer, and face that potential awkwardness. Or there's a conflict, obviously, between truth and social conventions. Right. If I knew that it would make the conversation awkward, I would just pretend like my sister was still alive. I notice now that if somebody says to me, my husband died not long ago, I say, why did he die? And so I tend to ask questions about it because I think there's a reason they brought it up. Mm. And usually I I find people are pretty glad to talk about it just because it can be so awkward and it can be so, especially if it's a, you know, something like suicide that makes people feel like they have to walk on eggshells. There's another social convention asking questions to which one really isn't interested in the answer. And you have some wonderful passages you write about that. Oh, well, because I go on these tours in the United States, and so I'll go to like 42 cities in 44 days. And so, you know, you go to the hotel and they say, uh, how's how's your trip in? So where you're coming in from. Welcome in. Are you here for business or pleasure? Business? I hope you save some time for pleasure. It's like the same conversations every day, and I just I just can't take it anymore. But I was in Chicago recently, and when you land in Chicago, if you have a car, like a driver waiting for you, now you're met by a greeter. And so a greeter is just another level of small talk and another person you have to tip. And they meet you at the baggage carousel, and then they lead you to your car. But I had this greeter, and she asked how my trip in was, and then she was, how was your flight? And then she was kind of dead to me but because she asked that question. But I just loved her look. She looked like she'd been kicked to the airport. So I started asking her questions, and she said, welcome to Chicago. She said, we got some great food here. And I said, I used to live in Chicago, but I I said, oh, really, like what? (laughs) Hamburgers and hot dogs, (laughs) French fries. Uh, We got great food (laughs) I would hire her to do like a Chicago tourism thing. I would (laughs) hire her. Oh, I'd love seeing the city through her eyes. See, that was okay if you can just get somebody off track and have, you know, a conversation. So, you know, I'm more apt to ask somebody, do you have any friends in wheelchairs, right? It's a good question. And so I asked this woman, do you have any friends in wheelchairs? And her mother was in a wheelchair the entire time she was growing up, and she had to be her mother's slave. And then she went to college, and her mother had an operation and could walk again. And it wasn't like she could walk with two canes. She just walked like anybody. And so this woman was furious because she devoted her whole childhood. And then, isn't that great? It's extraordinary. If I had said, how are you? I never would have known that. Yeah. I love the bit you described talking about a, a hotel check-in clerk and you ask about the godson. Because <laughs> that's another question. Do you have a godson? You know? Which is not a question, let's be frank, that most people would think to ask a complete stranger. No, but it's a good question. Yeah. So this, this, I was checked into a hotel and the woman said, how is your light in? And I said, you know, that's such a nothing question. Why not ask, do you have a godson? And she said, okay, do you have a godson? I said, I do. He's six years old and his name Tommy. And then she gave me that little smile and said, oh, that's nice. And then I said, he has cancer. And she said, poor thing. And I said, that's okay. I'm sure someone else will ask me to be a godfather. (laughs) I mean, he doesn't really have cancer, but I thought (laughs) I loved making it about myself. Are your siblings like you? Do they have the same wicked humor? They do. 
every last one of them. It's a pleasure to spend time with them. Next, we're getting festive as Marcus Hippie meets a fellow Finn, Santa. Well, if that hasn't got you in the Christmas spirit, perhaps our next guest will. Quite frankly, if he doesn't, then there may be no hope for you. Marcus, maybe you can give us a little more info about the CV of the great man. Yes, Tom. Well, he's very good with lists, meticulous, in fact. Checks it not once but twice. He's also great working with both children and animals, and he gets quite a lot of holiday once January comes around. No, listeners, it's not Marcus. It's Santa Claus himself and earlier. Marcus checked in with the preparations in Rovaniemi in Finnish Lapland. I wonder how you get prepared for something like this. Just just as an example, I'm wondering what kind of food you have eaten, considering that it must be physically exhausting what you're about to face over here. So have you been carb-loading, for example, or anything like that? Actually, I've been eating some salmon, and I love Christmas porridge. And they are very good for me for this journey. I, I, I feel fine for the journey now. What about what about the reindeer, Rudolph the Red Nose, and the others? Uh, Rudolph has been uh, eating lichen. Uh, do you know? We call it reindeer candy. Actually, uh, it's it's something that she he loves to eat, and the other ones too. And that gives the power and the magic of Christmas to the reindeers. I've heard of that. I've heard of that. I'm wondering, obviously, you have to get to so many households in the following, what, 24, 48 hours. I'm wondering, what, how, how do the logistics work? What kind of plan do you go? How, how, what kind of plan do you have in regards to where to go first and where to go after that and how to go from one country to another? Uh, actually, the magic of Christmas, as I said, that's, that's something that helps us very, very much. And actually, Rudolf knows the route. I just have to sit back in the sleigh and uh, enjoy. And he knows where to go, where to stop, where to start. And actually, the starting point, that's uh, kind of a secret. But some people are trying to follow me, and, and they have been following me several years, and they are trying to tell people that, oh, there's, he's going there. Actually, it's still a secret where I start, where I go. Right, right. Well, you mentioned the sleigh over there, and I have to ask ask something we've been talking a lot on Monocle 24, for example, it's it's the global warming. I'm, I'm thinking about you and and the reindeer, and obviously the sleigh you have to pull behind you. How how is glo- how is the global warming affecting you? Does is it is it is it making your job more difficult? Actually, as you know, global warming is something that we all have to do something about because it's affecting us all, uh, me and and Rudolf also. Uh, but uh, not not that much at the moment. Uh, we we can do our journey in in, in the old way, as as I could say. But in the future, we all have to do something about the global warming and helping nature. Well, now that you have been undoubtedly loading all the presents you have for for children and for grown ups as well, I have to ask about how the times are changing. So, in two thousand and nineteen, how do you define what is naughty and what is nice? Is it different from what it was like, say, thirty years ago? Uh, actually, it is. Uh, one of my wishes for this year and and for the next year is that people could use nicer words, that they could speak nicely, and they could uh, use friendly words. Because uh, I've been a little bit worried, because people have been using very strong language, uh, even uh, some vicious words between each other. Uh, and and that, that worries me quite a lot. And my wish is that the next time, for example, you see another person, please start with friendly and nice words. Do you ever self-reflect? I'm wondering, do you ever look in the mirror and think if you've been nice or not to yourself and do you think that you would deserve a lot of presents? Uh, I, I do that quite a lot, actually, because uh, as, as I do it for the, for the other people, I do it uh, to myself, too. And uh, I think I, I, I'm trying to be very good to everybody. And uh, me being good means that I'm listening. I'm listening to other people and I'm uh, helping them with that way. Well, what would you like to have as a Christmas present? The best Christmas present for me is that people are going to have happy thoughts about each other. 
Oh, that sounds so nice. Well, Santa, what is happening after Christmas then? How do you relax? I'm wondering, do you have flights booked for for the Caribbean or anything like that? How, how do you, how, what do you do after Christmas? Uh, after Christmas, we are starting to preparing the next Christmas. That's something that we do all the time. Here in Rovaniemi at the Arctic Circle, we are going to meet some uh, people. Of course, people are coming here to meet me. And uh, we are just uh, continuing the same as we do every day in here. So no holidays? Oh, why should I have? I don't work because this is a way of life. Time now for the next installment of our Monocle 24 countdown of some of the best moments of the past 10 years on air. Earlier this year on our dedicated publishing podcast, The Stack, Fernando Augusto Pacheco met the legendary American astrologer Susan Miller. I used to have nine magazines, but the magazine business is going through some trials and tribulations. I know it will come back because when I open a magazine, I'm in another world. Even the ads are wonderful. And right now they're they're very flat, at least in the United States, very flat like little pancakes. But I think, uh, you know, society never gives up a form of communication. Remember when they said radio was dead and now we have podcasts, which are like radio, it's audio. And we have Clubhouse, which is all audio, social media. So society doesn't give up a form of communication immediately, but it changes. But I think magazines will come back someday. And I've got to be honest with you, Susan, even uh, in Brazil when I was growing up, there was horoscope and astrology in the daily papers as well. And to be honest, that was kind oh, of yeah. essential, well, essential reading. Papers. Yeah, it was yeah. essential reading for me. And, 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 I, and I hope they continue because it's quite fun. It's interesting to know in the middle of the pol- all the political stories and everything. And then uh, there's something consistent there, which I always like. Well, you know, I have an app on the Apple App Store and Google Play, which is free for all your listeners. Free, absolutely free. You just go in. Now, it's a long name. So if you just search Susan Miller, (laughs) because it's called Daily Horoscope, Astrology Zone, and more by Susan Miller. And uh, just search Susan Miller. We had to put my face on the screen because people were pretending to be me and confusing the user. So... Uh, Look for me in a white blouse on either Google Play or the Apple App Store and download it for free. There is a component that if you want longer forecasts, it's $4.99 a month U.S. But uh, you don't need it because it has my monthly. That's what put me on the map. People love my monthly. And it's on the free app. I wanted to give it to people. I'm trying to do what my mother did for me. When I was paralyzed during the operation at age 14, I was in the hospital for a whole 11 months straight. And then I was looking at several years of grueling physical therapy. And I remember saying to my mother, I feel like I'm in the middle of the ocean and I don't even know which way land is. I don't know how to get to land. She said, you will get to land and I'm going to help you. You will, and you will walk again. You will, and I do. But, uh, you know, you have to work at it. And uh, I couldn't go to high school. I had to do homeschool. The Board of Education, you know, works with kids like that who get sick. And, um, And then I went on to college. I went to New York University and majored in business and graduated most likely to succeed. So... Because I found my determination like a little squirrel that wasn't going to give up, you know. (laughs) But my mother gave me that. So the reason I have a free component to the app is because people, people are walking over broken glass and hot coals out there. And I want to give them a view of all the good in their chart. Sometimes you're looking over here at a problem and you're not seeing all the glittering things that are over here. So it's my job to show you everything and with the hard part to show you a way out and how long it might take. You know, some things take longer to fix than others. But once you do, you become strong and that's that's good. I think one of the (laughs) secrets for your success as well, I mean, reading a few of your kind of readings and everything, there's a, there's a, a, a lack of uh, being too judgmental, which sometimes, you know, people might have this image of astrology, like, oh, you have to do this 
don't do that, don't, don't date this person. But I think yours, it's always, as I say, looking at the bright side of life in a way. Almost. And, and it's up to you. And sometimes I'll say it could work out this way or it could work out that way. There are different interpretations. That's what makes, you know, each forecast between 2,500 words or 3,000 words Well, actually, this sometimes they go to 4,000 words uh, occasionally. We like the long ones, by the way. Explain something. (laughs) You know what it is? Short in astrology can be confusing and misleading. So you have to give complete information, but in a warm, entertaining way. You can't be encyclopedic, you can't be dull. And so I keep pushing myself to use new words, but also I realized that 52% of my audience is not in the United States. And some people are reading my column and English is not a first language for them and uh, perhaps difficult. Maybe they're just learning English. So I have to be sure not to use idioms that people wouldn't. (laughs) I remember talking to a Chinese girl and she was going through a hard time. And I said, oh, it's time to get back on the horse. You know, it was after an appearance I did. And she said, oh, what is this about horses? Oh, cowboy horses, American <laughs> horses. <laughs> I said, oh, right. It's an expression we use. You got to get, you know, when the horse throws you off, you have to get back on. But it was so cute. And it really um, made me realize, you know, that when you're talking to a mass audience, you have to be clear. <laughs> At Monocle 24, our daily news shows are a thoughtful digest of the world's headlines each day, covering topics that the big national broadcasters might not necessarily touch on. But sometimes there's a breaking news story that needs an instant reaction. One of the biggest stories of the decade here in the UK was the EU referendum vote in 2016, which was swiftly followed by the resignation of David Cameron as prime minister. Our presenter Emma Nelson was on hand to get reaction from Monocle. The Prime Minister David Cameron there uh, tendering his resignation on the doorstep of Number 10 Downing Street. You're listening to The Globalist. Uh, you're listening to Monocle 24. We have a special programme on the UK exit from the European Union. Steve Bloomfield, 12 hours ago, the UK was part of the EU and it had a Prime Minister. Things have changed. They have. And I think you could hear from David Cameron in his voice there, which was breaking a little at the end. I don't think he expected it to turn out quite like this as well. He wanted to be remembered as the Prime Minister uh, that settled the Scottish question and that settled the European question. Those were going to be his two big legacies. Uh, And with this referendum, it's looking quite likely uh, that those two questions have been settled in just the way he didn't want them to be settled. Um, There's one other thing as well here to note, which is that he is essentially saying to the leavers, this is your, th- you, this is your problem to deal with. Um, I'm going. I, you know, I won't go right now. He'll stay for another few months. He'll, as he calls it, stay the ship. But the negotiations over what f- form of relationship we have with the European Union, that's on you. Best of luck, Boris. Andrew, um, Monocle has just published a book about how to build a nation. Where do we start with the United Kingdom? Well, I think there's a few people we could post copies to this morning. I just thought listening to Cameron, first of all, if he's out there to steady the markets, he does not sound convinced that this is a good option. He was... He was slightly equivocal about what will happen next. And I think also, if you're one of those Europeans living here or you're a Brit living abroad, as he described it, and you say, things won't change for the moment, it's okay for now, I would. There's, I, I think he sowed as much doubt in people's mind during that speech as reassurance. David Cameron has always been described by people close to him as a lucky prime minister. Uh, He ended up as prime minister in a coalition. He then ended up pulling off this extraordinary victory a little over a year ago, taking the Conservatives into majority government, which nobody expected. A referendum that he didn't want, that he thought he would be able to give away in coalition negotiations and never have, that he thought probably at 10.30 last night he would get a narrow victory and get a Remain vote. It is now coming up to half past eight on a Friday morning here in London. In the last 30 minutes, the Prime Minister has resigned and £124 billion has been wiped off the value of shares in London. That is, off the top of my head, something like eight years' financial contributions to the European Union 
have been wiped off the share market in 30 minutes. And above all that, about four hours ago, we had the confirmation that we have voted to leave the European Union. We are going to have a new prime minister by the end of the year. It will probably be Boris Johnson. He is going to speak in two and a half hours time. So we'll wait to see what he says. But in terms of surprising evenings, I can't think of a more surprising one than this. Gentlemen, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Paul Osborne, Tyler Brule, Steve Bloomfield, Andrew Tuck. You're listening to Monocle 24 uh, on the day that the United Kingdom decided to leave the European Union. Our reporters get to all sorts of unexpected places on Monocle 24, and that's what we're celebrating next. Here's a report from back in 2012 when our reporter Michael Booth headed out on a search for sea urchins in Norway for our weekly food show, The Menu. For some years, the head chef at Noma, Rennie Redzepi, has been telling me about this crazy Scottish fisherman who supplies him with sea urchins and amazing shellfish from far up in the Arctic Circle in northern Norway. Now, last summer, when I was hosting uh, the Mad Food Camp Symposium in Copenhagen, the Mad Scot approached me. His name is Roderick Sloan, and he invited me for a fact-finding trip up to his remote fishing village of Nordscot. So it's seven o'clock in the morning. It's still dark, of course. There are snow-capped, jagged mountains all around. And this morning, we're going to go and hunt some sea urchins. Roderick believes that the only way to fish for sea urchins sustainably is to pick them from the seabed by hand. But the waters of the Arctic are chilly at the best of times. In February, it was about minus two. So he showed us all how to get into our dry suits. What can happen is, OK, your throat will actually stop, and then the muscles will stop in your throat, and you can't breathe, and then you get a heart attack as well. But we're not going for that, guys. Don't stress about <laughs> it. Enough. This is why we're going to take you in off the beach, slowly and gently. Just think it's the Mediterranean, OK? That's all. So into the Arctic waters we went. Of course, uh, the recording equipment wasn't quite up to that, so um, you join us as we emerge clutching our sea urchin bounty. I should point out that Rod had uh, insisted that we go in without any gloves or any uh, hats on to give us a better idea of what he goes through hunting for sea urchins. And the, uh, the screams you hear, incidentally, are not me. They're a Norwegian journalist who is with us. It's as if I've just put my hand into a fire. Ah! <laughs> If you didn't have to put your hands and your and your uh, head under the water, then it would be perfect. It's fine. You don't feel right now. I mean, you're in the in the sea for two hours at a stretch, right? Yeah. I can't. I'm, I'm starting to feel a little bit cold in my body, but uh, I can't imagine how. But my hands are on fire. I think they just thought I was crazy. They, it's not a traditional fishery here in North Norway. North Norway is cod and uh, round fish and uh, aquaculture. But it's uh, so when I did the sea urchins, they were a bit like, "Wow, you're actually making any money off this?" You know. Wait, how did you start making money from it? Who did you sell to? Oh, we worked for a long time, okay, with wholesalers in France. Um, my wholesaler went bankrupt in Paris. A really bad year for me, and uh, it was actually the one point where I was just about to give up. Then Rennie arrived here. He came up to see you? Yeah, came to visit me. And then it was just, uh, it was fantastic. He's special. He's really special. In what way? Well, we took him out in the boat. Okay, Michael, you've been out in the sea. You know how cold it is. Mm. Yeah. He was out in trainers and very thin socks. Kind of like to think of myself as like a sort of football scout, you know, but underwater football scout. Rennie, he can be my Alex Ferguson if you want. I just go out and try and find new things that are edible for him, you know. And what's the latest? Last year it was mahogany clams. And they're now on the menu in Noma? Yeah, normally uses them on the menu. So what's the hot new seafood tip? What, what are you most excited about in terms of new produce? I think I want to try and get people to actually eat snails again. That's more more interesting for me as periwinkles. Why? Really, it's a fantastic taste. It's my favourite seafood. What's special about the, the produce here? Why is it Why is it special? The water's extremely clean. It's very cold. Um, one of the things about it is it means it takes a long time for the shells to grow, which means you get a huge development in the flavours. And the sea urchins, OK, the... Because of the midnight sun in the summertime, yeah, they have a huge amount of algae to eat off the rocks. The Japanese like them, so they must be good, and that there's become a growing world market for them. Yeah, uh, but it's, I think we're at the stage now where it's actually the world market's at, I wouldn't say saturation point, but from a side of a, sort of a point of sustainability, okay, 
the sea can't produce much more. And how, how do you keep your stock sustainable? I work in a five-year rotation on my fishing sites. When I talk to you about sea urchins, you actually seem genuinely fond of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've spent a lot of time with them, Michael, you know. You get to, to know them quite well. Uh, they're embedded in parts of my body, the spines for them. I am quite fond of them now. Over the last couple of days, we've been uh, travelling around this area with some, some chefs from Favikan and from Noma and, and other places. Why is it important for you to get the, the chefs up here? What I want to do is I, I want the chefs to actually be inspired by the surroundings. Okay, and I, th- I know it's important for them to have a story around the products for the customers, yeah. When they come up here, okay, they can actually see what my logistics are like, how far it is to actually get things done. And when, when they have that understanding, okay, and I say, for example, okay, I'll drive them to the airport, okay, they realise that's a whole day's work for me to actually just drive them to the airport. We'll take them out in the boat, okay, and I actually prefer the weather to be a bit rough when we take chefs out in the boat because they get a better feeling of what the, the work's about. Having warmed up a bit, it was time to get into the kitchen to get to know our bounty a little better. Yeah, I can feel it. I can feel it. He's walking across the farm line. Because ah! <laughs> it's almost imperceptible when you look at it, but you can feel a hundred little spines all moving together. And if I stood here long enough, he would make his way up my arm. Yeah. Why, why have you got these starfish in here? They're beautiful, amazing things. You're not eating those, surely? Starfish, okay, are a big debate, okay, but these are actually eaten in Japan, yeah? And I think they're dried, okay? And it's like, when the guys in different restaurants phone me up and say, can I have a sample box? I always send them starfish. I know there's potential in these, I just don't know how to do it. How, how would you prepare, prepare the uh, sea urchins? Sushi. To open them, okay, what you do is, uh, it sounds really strange, okay, but the... The anus and the sea urchins is on the top, yeah. okay, and the mouth is on the bottom. Right. Uh, so you cut around the mouth and the bottom, okay, and then you'll find five orange segments inside. Okay? Which are the gonads. Which are the gonads. Yeah. Uh, it's like uh, the sacs with the eggs and the sperm. Right, because yeah. they're the hermaphrodites. That's right. Yeah. Oh, done. Yeah. Uh, somebody's oh, done some I research. Know my sea urchins. <laughs> and then you just take a teaspoon, okay, and you take them out one by one. Yeah. Can well, you cook them? You can cook them, okay, but you have to use like a latent heat. You can't right. actually use a direct heat in them. So you case. can't poach them or anything like that? No. Uh, break them. How would you describe the taste of these? The, the taste, okay, first of all, okay, it's sweet. Yeah. That's the biggest surprising taste about them, yeah. Sea, obviously, very intense sea mm, taste. Iodine. Okay, and then sweet, and then iodine to finish. But they're not salty like oysters, are they? No. no. I, I always think of them as if, if mermaids made vanilla ice cream, and that's kind of how it would taste. That's a nice thought. <laughs> I like that one. It says quite a lot about the quality of the seafood from this part of the Norwegian coast that Trevor Moran, a chef at Noma, showed me what he was doing with the sea urchins we'd picked from the sea that day. I am going to make some scrambled eggs, uh-huh. which I'm going to fold some of uh, Roderick's sea urchins into at the end, okay. and then some uh, dill, because it's the only herb I could find in the fridge. Okay. Have you made this before? No, of course sea not. Sea urchins and eggs? No. no, I think it's a little bit of a strange one. I think it's an incredible example of a product taken through a process and then the finished result still being the product. Why is it important for you to come and see where your produce comes from? (coughs) There was no game plan really, it was an opportunity I didn't want to miss to be here but the offshoot was that as soon as I I got here, which I didn't expect was that although I thought I respected the product 100%, to see Roderick drop off the side of a boat into this water that could be zero degrees pieces of ice floating on it uh, it's just incredible next up we have a live session with funk group Kurangpin. they came and played for us at midori house back in 2015 here they are performing white gloves
One of our favorite big interviews was with none other than activist and actor Jane Fonda. Fonda spoke to Tomas Lewis about the importance of protest, using her celebrity platform for social change, and why she is inspired by a new generation of activists. You have said that you were inspired by the, the activism of Greta Thunberg in Sweden, by the writing of Naomi Klein, the, the Canadian environmentalist. You also talk about you know, the responsibility that younger people, in your view, are taking on, are putting on their shoulders, and that older people who are in the positions that can make the decisions that will change climate policy in places around the world, that you felt that older people weren't stepping up to the plate in the way that younger people were. You intentionally and actively went out and sought younger voices to collaborate with you on Fire Drill Fridays. What was that? What were those relationships like? It keeps me humble because... You know, I've met a lot of the leadership and are they smart? I mean, way smarter than me. They know the issue inside out. They're the ones that keep telling us you've got to focus on the science. All the speeches that really stayed with me from D.C. were all from the young people because you knew how scared they were that they might not have a future. There was one working class white girl from South Philly who desperately wanted to go to college and she had no money, but she got scholarships and she got accepted. And then she decided not to go because she needed to work on the climate crisis. A lot of young people are giving up their dreams to work on the climate crisis. And I find that just, I find it so touching. And, you know, they're the ones that were saying for a number of years, where are you older people, you know, You've got to step up to the plate or we're going to behave like the damn adults. Come on. So I took them up on it. And we're, you know, we're very close. We've had a lot of young people on our fire drill Fridays. And it's just, it's, it's, I just feel, I feel so grateful that I have been able to interact with the people that I have over the last year because of fire drill Fridays, young and old. And you recall in one of the early Fire Drill Fridays meeting a designer, part of the, the group, who is Vietnamese, and you told them that you'd been to Vietnam a few times, and they asked you, oh, why? And they didn't really know your history of activism and the huge part you played in resistance to the Vietnam War in the United States. How did, how did that feel to be a relative unknown in the eyes of someone uh, as part of Fire Drill Fridays? I'll never forget, I was in a Greenpeace office and she was on a speakerphone. And I asked her where, because we were discussing, I don't know, the third week's poster, I think. And I said, well, where in Vietnam do you come from? And she said, Hanoi. And I said, oh, I've been there a few times. And she said, and everybody in the room could hear it. She said, oh, how come? And just everybody <laughs> started laughing and clapping and thought it was so great. She obviously then, between then and the next time I talked to her, did a little research. <laughs> and had a lot more to say to me about, oh my God, I had no idea. That was fun, yeah. And given, Jane, that the areas that you have been an activist within have been so diverse over all the decades, have they felt like parts of one long narrative to you? Or have they felt like separate chapters that have, that have struck you along the way as your, your life's path has sort of wound its way forward? Have they felt like one continuous thing or have they felt like different moments in your life and, and your understanding of the world around you? 
it feels both like a long thread, a leitmotif that travels through the last 60 years of my life that has chapters in it. And, you know, a lot of it had to do with where I was at in that time. You know, what, the Vietnam War was all-consuming, and when that ended, that was the end of the 70s, and the economy was being taken over by corporations. That was the beginning of the problem, of the real problems, and that's when Reagan was, was then elected. And so it became about, okay, we're a democracy, but we're not an economic democracy. So the fight came for, for economic democracy. That's why I did my workout was to give money to the organization. It was called the Campaign for Economic Democracy. And we, we did it in California because we're the fifth largest economy in the world. And whatever happens here has a huge effect on, and a lot of the people that we got elected are still are still in various offices, like the Air Quality Board of California. You know, that was a chapter. And then, and then I went through some marriages, and that led me to become more active in the women's movement. But then as I began to realize that the climate crisis was, was getting more and more perilous, it's sort of like, that's it for me. Now that's what I'm going to focus for the rest of my life. That's a selection of some of our favorite moments on air, selected as part of the celebration of 10 years of Monocle 24 this month. Listen out for more live on Monocle 24 or browse the selection at your leisure at monocle.com. From London, I'm Daniel Bage. 